Good morning. I'll ask you to turn in your Bibles. We are up to Matthew chapter 3, and we're going to read the last several verses regarding Jesus' baptism. So Matthew three thirteen through 17. Once you've got it, then please stand for the reading of God's Word. And these are the words of God. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And may God bless the reading of his inerrant and infallible word. So last week, we saw that Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, was preparing the way for Jesus and for his ministry. And John was preaching a gospel of repentance and of the kingdom. And we noted that that is evidently quite different than the gospel that many Christians are preaching today. Repentance and the kingdom. That is quite different than a self-help kind of gospel that is so common today. He was baptizing people as a kind of a ceremonial cleansing. And baptism was uh, an existing practice for those who converted to Judaism from the outside. So if you, wanted to, if you were a Gentile and you wanted to convert to Judaism, you could. But you had to go through a ceremonial cleansing of baptism first to wash away the dirtiness of the world before you join the people of God. What's unique now is that Israelites themselves were coming to be baptized. And they didn't need to. They didn't need this particular cleansing. But they were coming as a demonstration of their own repentance and of their readiness for Jesus, and for the preaching of his kingdom. In verse 13, it says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan, by, to John, to be baptized by him. And so again, in the earliest chapters of Matthew here, Jesus is still a very young well, child in the first several chapters, and now he's a, a young man beginning his ministry. You've seen how he's moved around already significantly. First his parents moved for a census, and then there's their flight to Egypt. Now they're back, but they're not able to settle in their homeland. They have to go up north to Galilee to flee Archelaus and his reign of terror in the south. And now Jesus is coming down to Judea to see his cousin John and to be baptized by him. John's baptism of repentance had caught fire in the region, as verse 5 says, that Jerusalem and all Judea were going out to John. Now, frequently when the Bible says all, it doesn't mean every last single person. So you don't have to read that every last person in Jerusalem was baptized here. But enough of a mass of people was going out that the Bible, in common use of the language, could say they all were going out there. All of, all of Manitoba was there. All of Jerusalem and Judea were going out to John. And evidently, it's the common people, and not the religious leaders, who were getting baptized. The religious leaders came to observe and to see what was happening, but they did not stoop so low as to humiliate themselves with John's baptism. They were resting instead in the fact that they were Abram's physical offspring. And these men were well-dressed, they were respectable, and they were able to minister in much more dignified ways, and so they did not want to humiliate themselves 
by being ministered to by a wild man in his wild clothing and his wild diet. The religious men traveled a short distance to go see John, but Jesus, the high priest of heaven, comes all the way from the north to be baptized. For these Pharisees and the Sadducees, it's really not a great difficulty to just go out a little bit to go see what John is doing. Jesus had to travel quite a distance to get there. So not only is he submitting himself to John's baptism and and lowering himself to do this, uh, as we're going to see, but he also does it at great cost. He actually has to travel a significant distance to do this. In verse 14, it says, John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? And we do know that John was a godly man, and clearly he saw how upside down the situation was, that he would baptize his greater cousin. And he knew Jesus was greater than him. That's why he was preaching Christ. John wasn't preaching himself. He wasn't preaching works. He wasn't preaching do-it-yourself anything. He was preaching Christ. He was uh, godly enough to understand at least to a large degree what was happening. And now he resists Jesus' offer or Jesus' acceptance to be baptized by him. He doesn't want to see Jesus lower himself to be baptized by John. And this may remind us a little bit of how Peter did not want Jesus to wash his feet. And just in like manner, John does not want to see Jesus lower himself to receive his baptism. And in both cases, Jesus is very happy to receive the humility of these men, but he is unwilling to receive their refusal. He pushes through and makes sure that they do uh, as they need to. In both cases, Jesus pushes ahead and humbles himself. And in the parallel account of John 129, John gives what's known in Latin as the, Angus, or the Agnes Dei, which you may have heard of. It's a song that's Latin for the Lamb of God, and that's John's speech where he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And John is referring to the sacrificial system of the Old Covenant, in which a lamb without blemish had to be offered as a sacrifice for sins on the Day of Atonement. And this lamb, as you read in your Old Testament, could have nothing wrong with it, or else it would not be suitable for a sacrifice. John sees Jesus as this perfect lamb who would not only symbolically take away sin, but would actually do so now in substance. When you read Hebrews, it says that the blood of bulls and goats and lambs could never actually remove sins. This was a symbolic pointing forward to Christ, the true lamb of God. And so now the finally unblemished lamb is here to take away the sins of the people. In verse 15, it says, But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. This is a powerful phrase. I often actually think of this, even though I'm preaching from the ESV, I often think of this in the the King James language because I've heard it so often. He says, Suffer it now, John. Suffer it now. Do this. You have to do it, John we got to do this. The perfect, unblemished Lamb of God, who has no sin to confess or to repent of, is about to receive baptism. And why is this? Jesus is not a Gentile, so he doesn't need this ceremonial cleaning that the Gentiles need. He has no sin to repent of, so he's not receiving this baptism in the same exact manner that the Jewish people who are preparing for Jesus are doing it. So why would Jesus get baptized? The Old Testament had many cleansing ceremonies, and with John came a new depth of these cleansing ceremonies in the form of baptism. 
And the added significance of John's baptism, of repentance, and of the kingdom meant that the Jews and the Gentiles alike were being baptized for repentance. Jesus comes to us, he comes to this world as the second Adam, the second covenant head to represent those who are united to him, to undo the curse of the first Adam. And for Jesus to reverse the curse and for him to take the dominion over the earth that Adam frankly failed to take, Jesus is now acting as a covenantal head or as a representative And because Jesus is the fulfillment of and a termination point of the Old Covenant, this means that he has to perfectly fulfill all the requirements that God has ever put on his people. And there's a series of covenants that God makes in preparation for Jesus with his Old Covenant saints. The first one, of course, is with Adam in the garden to have dominion over the earth, and Adam fails in that. He makes a covenant with Noah about how seasons will continue to go on. We talked a little bit about that in Sunday school this morning. He makes a covenant with Abraham, and then Moses, and lastly with David. And in all these covenants, there's obligations and promises and and threats of punishment that are part of it. One helpful definition for a covenant, if you're wondering, well, what is a covenant, is this. And if you want to write this down, you can. Uh, A covenant is a is a, is a, a bond in blood sovereignly administered. A bond in blood sovereignly administered. So this isn't a contract, this isn't a negotiation between two parties that can agree on whatever terms they both find agreeable. God comes with the terms and they're not negotiable. He brings the terms and then he puts people into covenant and there's threats and promises uh, that accompany that. And all our former covenant heads have failed. Every last one of them fails in doing what they are obligated to do. And so Jesus must obey everything that Israel had been obligated to obey and yet failed at. And for Jesus to do this and to represent both Jew and Gentile alike, he must be baptized on all of our behalf. He has to once and for all receive the cleansing of the old covenant system. And this is what it means when Jesus says that he needs to fulfill all righteousness. And I think we often have a pretty clear picture of Jesus taking away our sins. That uh, You ask almost any kid that's grown up in a Christian family, and they know that Jesus died on the cross to forgive their sins. And this is a wonderful, glorious truth. But if that's all there's to it, why wouldn't Jesus just come down to earth as a fully grown man, take one day to get crucified, and ascend straight back to heaven? Why go through all these steps? Why not just cut straight to the cross and it's over? But he does go through the additional steps of being born, of living under the law, and then of being resurrected before his ascension. And it is because there's actually a two-way exchange. Yes, our sin goes on to Christ, just like the sin symbolically went on the scapegoat or on the lamb. But there's another transaction where Jesus' righteousness that he has to earn in time as a man comes on to us. This is a great exchange. It's a two-way exchange between Christ and those who are in Christ. It's a double exchange. And if all that happened was that our guilt is removed, what are we left with? We're left being morally neutral. And we still don't have a good answer when God says, why should I let you into my heaven? We don't have a great answer. We might not be guilty, but we're certainly not righteous either. And one of the glorious truths of the gospel is that our sins are forgiven and, and you are covered by the righteousness of Christ. Jesus earns this righteousness by becoming truly man, taking on the role of head of the covenants 
and then fulfilling all the obligations of perfect obedience that are in them. And baptism is one more step along the way of keeping these covenants perfectly. Jesus' fulfillment of the righteous requirements of the law makes it possible for the glorious truth of 2 Corinthians 5.21 to be possible. And it says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the great exchange. And think for yourself. The most reprehensible, the most embarrassing, sinful thing that you have done in your life. And let the weight and the shame of that sit on your chest for a while. Jesus come not only just to take that guilt away, but to say that in that very area you are righteous. When you go to the courtroom of God, if you are in Christ, the verdict is not merely not guilty. God looks at you, and if you are covered in the righteousness of his Son, he says, holy, perfect, righteous. He is just as pleased with you in that moment of judgment as he is with his own Son, because you are covered in the righteousness of Jesus. He has to come and obey as a man to earn this righteousness on our behalf. So when John understands that Jesus is getting baptized, not just as some kind of solitary act, but as an act of corporate solidarity, of taking covenant headship, he then understands and is, uh, consents to baptize Jesus. And this inaugurates Jesus' earthly ministry. He becomes a very public figure at this point. And we all know how our own personal salvation works. The moment of inauguration of our salvation is at the moment of conversion, at the moment of justification where God declares us righteous, We are not glorified or made perfect until we are in his presence after death. But in that in-between time, there's this process of sanctification or filling out or slowly becoming conformed to the image of God. This is how redemptive history works in Jesus' own ministry. His public ministry goes from inauguration through a time of filling and progressing and then ending in consummation. It's a pattern of going from humiliation to exaltation. And in the broadest strokes, Jesus' ministry is one that slowly moves from humiliation to exaltation till he is ascended back into heaven. Verse 16 says, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And the custom for the people being baptized was to confess their actual sins in the water. But since Jesus had no sin to confess, he was able to come out of the water immediately. And so now, at his inauguration ceremony, heaven opens up so that Jesus is able to see the unseen world. And there's stories of this happening in other times. We know Elisha's servant has his eyes open, the veil is removed, so he's able to see the host of heavens uh, around him, the host of angels. Uh, At Stephen's martyrdom, a similar thing happens, where the veil is removed and he's able to see the unseen world. And so there are these rare moments in redemptive history where God pulls back the veil that keeps us from seeing his full glory. And then it says that the Spirit of God descends on Christ. And perhaps this may cause us to wonder, well, why does Jesus need the Holy Spirit? If we believe in the Trinity, as we all should, doesn't Jesus already enjoy eternal union with the Spirit? And of course, he does. But it is actually precisely because of this Trinitarian relationship with the Father Sending the Son, that the Spirit joins them. 
Again and again, we see how the three persons of the Trinity work together in the same actions, with the Father sending the Son, the Son obeying the Father, and then the Holy Spirit shining His light on the whole operation and glorifying the whole thing. We also know that Jesus is truly God and truly man. Okay, So Jesus isn't 50-50 man and divine. He's not a divine essence inside of just a human body. Okay? These are both errors and maybe easy to understand, but they're false. Uh, inside the man of Jesus, there is a fully human nature and a fully divine nature. He is 100% God and 100% man, which means there is a human nature uh, in Jesus. And it's this human man, it's Jesus as a man, according to his humanity, that he has to obey God's law perfectly on our behalf because we are truly man. And so it's entirely fitting, according to his humanity, that the gifting and the possession of the Holy Spirit happens. And we don't know exactly how Christ's human and divine natures communicate to each other. The Bible doesn't say how this works. But the gifting of the Spirit does empower Christ for the ministry that's ahead of him. And the very next step we're going to read about is how he is tempted in the wilderness. So Jesus needs to resist temptation. Uh, And he doesn't do this alone. He does this in union with the Spirit. So this giving of the Spirit to the Son by the Father shows an eternal covenant even within these three persons of the Trinity to redeem the world. And it says that the Spirit descends like a dove. So it takes on a bodily, visible form which is fitting with the initiation of Christ's public ministry. His ministry has now become public. He's out in the open. People can see this with their eyes. Uh, And so the descent of the Holy Spirit comes in a very visible form. And the image of a dove is fitting in many interesting ways. So often the Bible uses imagery that should take us back uh, to other things and, uh, that we know about in the Bible stories, in the process of historical redemption. What is happening here? Well, first of all, we know that heaven has been opened, so the fact that this is a bird of some sort makes entire sense. The heavens are open. Of course a bird will come down. And we may think, well, perhaps an eagle would have given a picture of royalty and majesty, and that is true. It would have. But here we have a dove, and this pictures gentleness, purity, and innocence. Jesus later in Matthew 10, 16 will tell us to be innocent as doves. So to Jesus, a dove is innocent. Doves, according to Isaiah 38, 14 and 59, 11, are also known for their mourning. And we know Jesus himself wept as he goes through his ministry. Doves were the only bird in the Old Covenant that were clean enough or that were fitting to be part of the sacrificial system, according to Leviticus 1.14. And again, this provides a picture of Christ offering himself without spot or blemish to the Father. And lastly, in one particularly powerful image, in Noah's flood, as the waters are receding, Noah first sends out a raven, but this bird stays away. It's an unclean bird, and it's maybe happy to live on the garbage that's floating around or or something. But the first bird that Noah sends out stays gone. This raven stays away. And then in Genesis 8, 8 through 11, we read, Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening. 
And behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So no one knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. And so the dove is a much more dignified bird. And after not finding a suitable home, she returns back to her temporary home on the ark until she finds an olive branch to bring back as a sign of peace. As the waters are receding, so has God's wrath been spent. And she goes back to her permanent home. And if this is how the Holy Spirit is portrayed, think how long has the Holy Spirit been hovering over the earth, waiting for its permanent home and finding no man suitable to be the permanent recipient. Until at last Christ comes and offers the terms of peace, that God's wrath is to be spent once and for all, and the dove finds her permanent place in Christ. The landing of the dove symbolizes the hovering of the Spirit, and this is the similar language that's used. And this hovering has often been marked uh, to, to show the start of several new creations. Of course, at the initial creation, the Spirit is hovering. We have it after the flood, and now we have it again with Christ and his earthly ministry, bringing his kingdom to heaven, or from the kingdom of heaven down to earth with him. The dove has found her resting place. In verse 17, it says, And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And again, if you're familiar with your Old Testament, you'll know that this is a fulfillment of multiple passages. In Psalm 2, verse 7, it says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. There's an inauguration theme here in Psalm 2, 7. In Isaiah 42.1, it says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Again, John tells us, or Matthew tells us, that this is happening now. The spirit of the Lord God in Isaiah 61.1, The spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. So we see at Christ's inauguration here, there is Old Testament fulfillment landing on him on this special occasion of his baptism. God's audible voice is extremely rare, and it occurs only three times in the scriptures here. In all three cases, it is clear that he is speaking directly about his son and giving him his due honor. It happens here at Jesus' baptism, It's going to happen again at the Transfiguration, and it's also going to appear in the events of the final week of Jesus' life. And so the object of revelation here is always and ultimately Christ Jesus. He is the termination point of all this. We talked about the termination point. Uh, It doesn't mean everything that's gone before uh, was a bunch of garbage and useless. What it means is, like a battery terminal, everything is designed to end up at this very spot. It's all leading up to Christ. And so that is what is meant by Christ being the terminal end of all these things. He's the point. It was all leading up to him, including God's voice of revelation. So when people today make claims of this, of revelation, it should be considered in light of how rare, how public, how weighty, and how Christ-focused the voice of God is in the scriptures, as we see here. God is truly delighted in his son, who is at the same time a royal, conquering king and an obedient, suffering servant willing to humble himself to his cousin's baptism. 
And so we see in this passage, Christ's path to exaltation and to glory comes through humility. Christ has humbled himself to receive baptism on behalf of all of us who belong to him. And when he has taken the step of obedience, the heavens open up and the dove of the Spirit descends on Christ. So what do we do with this? I think there's two very obvious questions we have to ask ourselves to apply these truths into our own lives. The first is, do we belong to Christ? Christ performs his public ministry on behalf of all those who are united to him. Are you united to Christ? Do you belong to Christ? Do his benefits belong to you? The obedience that Christ carries out as he fulfills and perfects God's requirements is applied to those who are united to him through the gospel. Jesus wasn't baptized for himself. He was baptized for you, if you are in Christ. And union with Christ and adoption into God's family are such important themes in Scripture because this is how we get credited with Christ's perfection. We are adopted into God's family as Jesus' younger brothers and sisters. And so the inheritance that belongs to Christ by association, by union, also belongs to you. His inheritance rightfully belongs to those who are in him as well. And these benefits are not applied evenly to everyone, but to those who are Christ's. And if you are a human being, you are represented by one of two covenant heads. Either you are remaining in Adam with all the weight of all the curses landing on you, or you are represented by Christ with all the promises and all the inheritance that comes with him. There is no other one who will represent you. You are in Adam or you are in Christ, and there is not a midpoint. So if you want the benefits of Christ's ministry, if you want to be credited with his righteousness, it will not happen unless you are in union with him through the gospel. And secondly, are we depending on the Holy Spirit? Some have said that the Holy Spirit is often the most neglected member of the Trinity, and this may well be. And it is true that the Spirit's job in Scripture is more to illuminate than to directly do things, and that may well be the case. He shines the light on what the Father and Son are doing, and so the Spirit operates more like lighting on the stage than like the lead singer at a concert. His job is to make the Father and Son come into focus, to make them look glorious. And so perhaps due to the nature of his work, or to neglect, or both, and perhaps to misunderstanding, others in our time emphasize the Spirit in frivolous or unbiblical ways, making it much easier for others to neglect him even more. Well, if all that's happening is those people who talk about the Holy Spirit are doing weird stuff, then the solution is to just ignore him altogether. And that's not healthy. We see that the Holy Spirit is life, and we need the Holy Spirit if we are Christians, and you possess him if you are a Christian. So we cannot fall into either ditch of either giving unbiblical job descriptions to the Holy Spirit or of neglecting him. Jesus himself was given the Spirit at the inauguration of his ministry to glorify him and to empower him as he is about to enter into an extended season of testing and temptation. And if Jesus himself is strengthened by the Spirit, how much more do you and me need him? How much more do me and you need him? We are in a fist fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Do we think we are up to the task? I'm not and not anything critical of you. I know you're not either. 
because the Bible says so. We need to be empowered by the Spirit if we are going to be successful in our fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil. So we too, when we die, we want to hear the Father's announcement that He is pleased with us. And this will not happen apart from the Holy Spirit. Jesus is without sin and He still draws on the Spirit to enable Him to please the Father. And we are full of sin which we are not even able to see. Our sin is so pervasive. It's so blinding. We can't even see our sin until or unless the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to it. That's how corrupting sin is. That's just what's in here. Much less what's out in the world that we have to face yet too. So of course, we must receive the Holy Spirit. We must draw on the Holy Spirit to handle what life will throw at us. And with that, I want us to consider, if you are a believer here this morning, then our task is to consider the role of the Holy Spirit, to see if Jesus is empowered by him, how much more for the things that we face do we need God's Spirit to be providing protection for us, to empower us to fight the tricks and the snares of the enemy. To hear, like Jesus heard, that God is well pleased with us. And if you are here and you are not a Christian, none of these benefits of Christ apply to you. And I would encourage you, come to Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. It's not just forgiveness for sins, it's also the imputation of Christ's righteousness. If you belong to Christ, you become perfect, you become holy, you become righteous, and you receive the Holy Spirit to work that out, to fill that out in the days remaining on this earth. And so with that, let's close in prayer. Father God, I want to thank you for who you are. I want to thank you for the way that you sent your son to go from humiliation to glorification, to not just take our sins from us, but also to give us his righteousness. Lord, and I pray for each one here. Lord, we pray that each one here would know you in a sweet and saving way, that we would be able to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, not on account of our self-effort, but because we are adopted into your family. You have given us the inheritance that you have given to Jesus. Lord, and you have filled us with your Holy Spirit to help us work that out in time to become more and more conformed to his image. Lord, I pray that that would be uh, true for everyone here and that that would also be true for us as a church family uh, and our households and this household of households that is your church. Lord, I pray that we can spur and encourage each other on, that we could love each other well, pray for each other, Help each other in the fight against sin. Lord, and know that all of it ultimately comes not from ourselves, but it comes as a gift from you. We thank you for this. Thank you for the baptism of Jesus. Thank you for the pouring out of your Holy Spirit. Lord, and thank you that he obeyed where we could not and where we would not. And we commit the rest of our time together and our fellowship afterward into your kind and fatherly hands. And we pray this all in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. So receive the charge. Christ's public ministry often advances through humility and suffering. The humble act of receiving baptism as a symbol of cleansing is something Jesus does not because he needs it, but because he is obeying on behalf of all his younger brothers and sisters. He begins a ministry of actively obeying all that God's law has required, empowered by the Spirit of God. By receiving the Spirit, we see Christ's gentle innocence, his mourning through a life of suffering, his unblemished purity, and his ability to permanently secure and fulfill the terms of peace we need. The gifting and sealing of the Spirit further shows the dependence of the Son on the Father 
and the Father's delight in the Son. If you are united to Christ through personal repentance and faith, all of Christ's inheritance from the Father is rightfully yours. The Father is as pleased with you as he is with Christ, and your share in the Holy Spirit is just as secure as Christ's, and it is this Spirit who is sure to seal, guide, and empower you as you follow the righteous life of Jesus. And I'll give you the benediction from Romans fifteen thirteen. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. And go in peace, or stay in peace.